Welcome to WDMA Open and Close. I'm your host, Michael Bryan, CEO of the Window and Door Manufacturers Association. Coming up in this episode is a discussion about the outlook for the commercial multifamily markets with AIA Chief Economist Kermit Baker. Then we'll have a conversation with John Zadro of Omniglass SCT about trends in fiberglass fenestration. And a little later, we'll have an update from WDMA's Kevin McKenney about current developments on tariffs and NAFTA renegotiations. So stay with us. Joining us now on the podcast is Kermit Baker. Kermit is the chief economist for the American Institute of Architects, where he analyzes business and construction trends in the U.S. economy and examines their impact on AIA members and the architectural profession. He also originated AIA's Work on the Board Survey, a monthly assessment of business conditions at architecture firms, and he's also the source of the widely followed Architecture Billings Index. Kermit's been a frequent speaker at past WDMA events, and today he joins the podcast to give his perspective on the direction of the commercial multifamily markets. Kermit, welcome to the podcast. Mike, glad to be with you today. So we got a lot to cover in a short period of time. So let's start with the with the big picture and we'll move down into more granular stuff. So can you share your thoughts on the overall state of the economy as we head into the final quarter of the year? Well, you know, the, the, the economy's humming along very well, Mike. Um, you know, we had a modestly weak first quarter, a very strong second quarter. You know, I think probably GDP growth for the year will be around 3%. So that's a, that's a good number. So I'm, I'm guessing the fourth quarter will be somewhere around there. Uh, you know, good, good, good solid numbers we're seeing in, in, in growth. Um, and, you know, I think that can support uh, pretty solid activity and construction activity. Anything troublesome worrying you coming up on the horizon? I saw that just had an interest rate increase. Well, there's a lot of dark clouds there, and I suppose we need to dive into those, Mike. You know, one is that this uh, expansion, this economic expansion, is getting a little long of tooth. Uh, We celebrated the ninth anniversary of this expansion this past summer, and that puts us at the second longest post-World War II expansion. So I think there's a little bit of uh, of concern that the music may be stopping soon, that, uh, you know, we're, we're going to hit one of these uh, inevitable downturns in the economy. And, and I think that's supported by some other things that we're, that we're seeing out there. We're seeing a, a very low unemployment rate in the overall economy and even lower unemployment rate for the construction industry. That's generating a fair amount of uh, inflation in construction wages. We've got some pretty strong uh, increases in construction materials prices, a lot of that uh, generated by the the trade and tariff situation that we're seeing. You mentioned a um, a Fed quarter point uh, rate increase, where now the Fed funds rate is now up to two and a quarter percent. I I think the, the, the interest rate increases are just reflecting the strength that we're seeing in the overall economy, so not too disconcerting. But yeah, we're we're in the late stages of an economic cycle where we get to see, uh, typically see some inflation cr- uh, cropping up. We get to see some some labor shortages, some uh, uh, inflation in, in labor prices and things like that. So yeah, I think there's a little bit of uh, folks holding their breath saying, you know, how much, how much strength do we have less in, left in this cycle? So let's talk more specifically about the non-residential sector. How would you characterize 2018 so far, and where do you think we're going to wind up by the end of the year? 
Well, you, you know, I think the numbers have been healthy through the first, what, seven months, I guess, of data that we have. You know, we track the building side of the non-residential market, and, you know, we're seeing increases of about 3% overall compared to the first seven months of 2018. So that's, you know, that's that that's healthy numbers. You know, I think not overheated, something that can be sustained, and I think we're probably going to see you know, as we wind down the year, we're probably going to see non-residential building activity for the year somewhere in the three, three and a half percent range would be my guess. And is that healthy, expected? How would you characterize that three percent? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, it's a little bit hard to evaluate because we're seeing such a, you know, strong increases on the materials and labor side. So, you know, we're not seeing an all, awful lot of growth in, in, you know, square footage of building activity. But, but I think this is sustainable. Uh, I, I think we can keep this pace going without generating uh, more inflation than we're already seeing on the non-residential market. You know, I think that's a number that we should be happy with. You know, the pieces vary a little bit, and we can cover that. Mike, some some of the sectors are a little bit stronger than others, but I think I think three percent growth in in non-residential buildings is is probably a number we should be reasonably happy with. Okay, so let's talk about those particular sectors. So, what's performing best? Well, we we kind of break the world down into three three big groups in terms of non-residential building activity. The commercial side is the private side. That's hotels, resale, uh, retail, and offices. Those numbers have been very good so far this year. They've been in the sort of 5 6 7% range and probably can sustain that level of growth through the end of this year. The second is uh, the manufacturing industrial side. That's been very weak, uh, mostly because we had some strength a couple years ago, and so we're still seeing sort of a, a weak comparisons from that. And the third is the biggest slice, the institutional side, public, nonprofit, things like that, education, healthcare. That's been seen fairly modest growth so far in 2018. You know, we think that's the one sector that can actually support more growth moving forward. We, we expect to see 2019 a bit stronger on the institutional side than it was in 2018. In contrast, the commercial sector is probably going to be a little bit weaker in 2019 than they than we've seen so far this year. What are the drivers there on institutional performing better? Sure. The, the institutional construction numbers tend to be a little bit later in the cycle because they rely on local government rebuilding their uh, economic base. They're, they base a little bit on sort of stock market performance and, and, and gifts and endowments and things like that. Uh, they also are very reliant on demographic trends. The two big institutional pieces are, as I suggested, education and healthcare. And education is obviously very much influenced by our school and college age population. And those numbers have been have been growing at a at a reasonably healthy pace, not super strong, but reasonably healthy. The, the healthcare is much more driven by the other end of the demographic spectrum, older uh, older Americans who spend more on healthcare, and, and that's really the the, the strongest uh, demographic group in in our economy now. These these are baby boomers, kind of getting into their retirement years, moving into their late 60s and early 70s, at least the, the leading uh, edge of that, and they tend to be very very big healthcare spenders. So uh, as our population continues to age, as the baby boom generation continues to age, we're going to see a lot more demand for, for health services moving forward. I mean, I know you mentioned the impact of the tariffs. I mean, in this particular non-res sector, what are you seeing in terms of impacts? 
Well, it's it's kind of a moving target. You know, yeah, materials. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> you, <laughs> materials used in the non-residential building sector are up almost uh, almost ten percent year over year basis. You know, obviously steel and aluminum driving it, but uh, you know a lot of increases in in lumber, gypsum board, and things like that. Other metals. You know, as we were just chuckling about a moving target, is that the you know the, the list of products that might be subject to tariffs is an evolving list. It doesn't seem to be getting any shorter, though. It does seem to be getting longer. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of concern. I think there should be a lot of concern over availability and pricing of products moving forward that use that are used in non-residential buildings. It, it doesn't look like this uh, trade and tariff situation is going to get resolved anytime soon. It's definitely uh, been a roller coaster. So how would you talk about the multifamily sector this year? How has it performed? Well, big picture, Mike, is the multifamily sector, I think, has been the strongest construction sector so far for this uh, this expansion. It, it, it really took off pretty, uh, pretty sharply coming out of the recession. 2011, 2012, 2013 have been uh, very, have seen very strong growth for multifamily. Seemed to peak around 2015. It's been kind of flat trending down over the last few years 2018 first half of the year has been a you know a, a pretty good year looks like we're going to be up a little bit over 2017 levels but i think i think the big trend on multifamily is is basically flat uh, you know somewhere in the 350 to 400,000 uh, uh starts a year in multifamily looks like we're going to hit about 375 this year and I'm guessing that's probably the, the the best target for the foreseeable future, 2019, maybe even 2020, sometime around there. Not a lot of growth, but sustaining itself at very healthy levels. So how would you break that up between rental and condo? A little bit more on the, you know, the condo market has been very weak, seems to be coming back. There's a lot of interest, I, I think growing interest on the part of younger households, millennial households to get into home ownership and, and, and given that they've delayed marriage and delayed childbearing, I think a in-city condo appeals to them a lot. They get some of the advantages of uh, home ownership and, and still get those preferential locations. So I, I think we're going to start to see that and, and already have started to see that that shift a little bit more to the condo side, a little bit less to the um, to the rental side. So are rental rates playing a huge factor there? Well, I think, you know, the, the issues we're seeing in, in multifamily are, you know, have a lot to do, I think, with affordability issues on the, on the single family detached side, single family attached and, and, and traditional condo side too. I think, uh, you know, more and more households would be inclined to move into uh, home ownership, but just can't save up for that, that down payment. Rents are rising now and that's going to exert even more pressure on the rental market and, and more pressure to, to get into home ownership. But yeah, I, I think we're starting to see, you know, we're starting to see rents become more of an issue. We're starting to see vacancies become more of an issue. And I think that's putting pressure on the uh, the overall construction uh, side of, of the multifamily market. So if everyone was going to hang on your outlook for 19, how would you sum up your best forecast for 19 for both these sectors? Sure. So I, you know, I think flat on the on the multifamily side. I think probably the 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 price points, uh, the rent targets are going to be a little bit lower. I think we've oversaturated the upper end market in a lot of uh, 
a lot of metros across the country. So I, so I think flat levels of uh, construction, but probably a little further down the uh, price spectrum. On the commercial institutional side, you know, I, I'm guessing we're going to see, you know, as I said, sort of three and a half, three, three and a half, four percent growth in 2018. I think we can look for a comparable number for 2019, but a bit of a flip in terms of the growth. It's it's really commercial construction that's that's driving most of the growth this year. I think next year we're, we're going to see the commercial flatten out a little bit, and we'll see that that strength move over a little more to the institutional side of the market. Any particular red flags you see? Well, a, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of dark clouds out there, as we talked about, you know, in, in, in addition to labor issues, we've talked a lot about in addition to inflation in, in, in building materials. Uh, you know, I think, I, I think the trade and tariff is, is probably something that really could begin to uh, show up more as a factor. You know, I think prices on the uh, multifamily side have been extremely high. So as we start to see demand pull back a little bit, I think we should we could see some decline there, and that's gonna that's really gonna force uh, rents up even more. So it could it could uh, become sort of a, a bit of a you know house of cards in terms of how much this market might settle out. Well, thank you so much, Kermit, for coming on and giving us your perspective on the current state and where things might be headed for 2019. Mike, good talking to you. We appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break and then stay with us for my conversation with John Zadro. In business for over 35 years, Omniglass SCT has become a leader in the world of fiberglass fenestration products. Having produced over 130 million feet of fiberglass lineals in over 500 different window and door profiles, Omniglass SCT continues to be an industry innovator. With me today to discuss some of these fiberglass trends is John Zadro, president of Omniglass. John, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to uh, be a part and participate in the WDMA uh, podcast series. Well, thank you. John, let's start off with a little bit of background about Omniglass. You know, Omniglass was the birth child of two companies. Um, It was a fiberglass poltrusion and aluminum window manufacturers. It was uh, Laurie Davies of Accurate Doorwind Windows and um, Leroy Dankochik of uh, Fairwax Poltrusions that were the first two employees of Omniglass back in 83. It's over 35 years ago, as you'd mentioned. So they started working in a garage. They were pioneers when they first uh, introduced the all-fiberglass window back in uh, 84. And during these days, early days, they developed and perfected an in-house pre-shaper technology. Subsequently, they issued uh, 13 licenses worldwide. First licensee was uh, in Europe back in 90. And uh, I believe the, uh, as the process was proven and technology, some of the biggest fiberglass windows uh, manufacturers in America started with the uh, Omniglass license. Um, first was issued in 93. So the company focused on poultrying fiberglass pro- uh, profiles as a partner for window manufacturers throughout North America. Never wanted to compete with our clients. Our focus was to help them build the best fiberglass window for their target market. So Omni was considered a leader in the poltrusion uh, complex thin wall profiles, and we work hard to maintain that reputation. As fiberglass has been on the steady growth curve for decades, as the material makes so much sense in the performance of windows, because demands on our market continue to escalate. But then in 2012, Omniglass had what we called the event, and I trust we're going to go there to probably. Ask you about the, the fire. That was the event. There was that closed the operation down for most of uh, the, that year. 
And were you already there or it was after the event? No, I uh, was not participating uh, at all. It was uh, I came in after. Um, I had been involved in the fiberglass industry since 92, and my role was uh, president of uh, Structural Composite Technologies. And that introduced me to the ownership team of Omniglass years ago, well before the event, and because both businesses were operating in uh, Winnipeg, Canada. The fire, that was on New Year's Day of 2012. Not any, Not the way anyone should have to bring in the new year. No. And um, within days, I called Laurie and Leroy and asked how Structural could help. But their recovery, it didn't go smoothly. And within six months, Omniglass was up for sale. So uh, Leroy and I actually teamed up and uh, we were the successor. In October of 12, Omniglass SCT started. And we produced our first poltrusion under the uh, new ownership in the building that Structural Composites occupied. My background of 25 years plus with Structural have led to, um, I've designed stacks and tanks and covers. So I'm very familiar with the properties of fiberglass that brings uh, to the window industry. So there was a a keen attraction to to the uh, Omniglass succession. So you were instrumental in in building a new outlook for the use of fiberglass composite materials for the company? We did. We did a rebranding. You know, we, we kind of sloganed ourselves up from the ashes and the energy codes as we started getting into them we're finding that the energy codes are not going to ease up anytime soon. So performance is required from, I mean, all building materials and systems. The windows, they needed to catch up. What I've understood is the developments with, uh, within the glass industry has resulted in great advances in thermal performance. But now it's more understood how the frame can provide further improvement uh, to the window performance. Fiberglass is recognized as the strongest non-metal. It's got great thermal performance. So it's strong, it's warm, it won't rot, and you can paint or laminate it. It's kind of the ideal window frame. I've always said if fiberglass was the first to the market before wood, aluminum, or uh, vinyl PVC, these other materials would have a tough, challenging time penetrating uh, the market later on. Our advice is fiberglass may not be your first windows, but they'll be your last. So was it always a North American company, or was it solely Canadian focus and then expanded, or what was the progression? It started in Canada, but quickly uh, it was appreciated and understood. Uh, it was designed for the Canadian market. We were the ones with the climate variances and the deltas. And so uh, there was energy requirements and aluminum was still pretty popular. Uh, wood had a inroads. Vinyl was hugely popular, owned most of the market. But fiberglass just needed to, it, it had a reason, it had a place. And uh, it just made a lot of sense when both Laurie and Leroy started that back in 83. So you're right that fiberglass is gaining popularity because of the structural strength and the thermal performance and you know, rot resistance and paintability. How have you been able to meet the needs of both residential and commercial using fiberglass and composite materials? You know, to, to most Americans, their home is the most significant purchase they'll ever make. And when you opt to build or renovate your home, um, the demand, demand is to install bigger windows, or you want bigger glass in the replacement unit that you're taking out. So bigger glass means a thinner, stronger, and warmer frame. The homeowner expects to be comfortable on the inside of these new larger windows. You know, there was a day when only architects and engineers were were the few who built fiberglass windows into their own homes. But today there's a number of national window uh, companies who have offered composite windows for years now. They're doing a great job of educating the public, and now the public's asking for pricing in fiberglass. So the ground swelling's already kind of begun. As far as the uh, part of the building permit process, 
We're finding in larger homes and office buildings that uh, thermal modeling is now required. The thermal advantage on large windows built with fiberglass frames, I mean, it's numerically proven in these computer models. Coupling this education and modeling, the energy codes are going to continue to tighten up on the building construction and windows are becoming a, a more significant performer to the building envelope. So how do you see the future of composite materials in the industry developing? The curve is slow, but steadily increasing. We're running into energy conservation. It doesn't matter whether it's fuels or electrical utilities. Your costs are going up, and it doesn't matter whether you're in a cold climate or in a hot climate. Uh, There's still that delta, and there's that discomfort level between um, the outside and the inside as far as your, your living environment. Fiberglass has a thermal performance. Glass has been hugely advanced as far as its performance is concerned. And there's, I, I would say that the changes in glass are getting to a point where it's very small and minuscule as far as its uh, conservation or its deltas. And so as a result, the frame's got to be the next solution. And windows are getting bigger. We're looking to get bigger windows in, this ho- in these homes. We want to bring the outside in. Uh, we want to feel Mother Nature inside of our environment. And we're allowed to the way these units are performing these days. This daylighting is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Huge, huge, correct. Do you, do you see a difference, though, in that trajectory with respect to residential versus commercial? I believe that all of those, the commercial buildings are going to be modeled and uh, scrutinized more carefully than ever before. Government buildings, owner-occupied buildings, owners of apartment blocks, uh, owners of schools and hospitals, they need to maintain these buildings uh, later on, uh, I refer back to the fact that there's not a lot of, we've been building fiberglass windows for 35 years and there's many of those windows are still in market, still in operation today, and not a lot of them have been replaced. So, you know, it's it's appreciated by the industry, the architects are appreciating its performance and they're specking them and hard specking them into a number of jobs throughout the country. So you've been involved with WDMA for a while. So we like to ask folks that come on the podcast about what they feel are the main benefits that your company gets out of membership. I started involved with WDMA two years ago. We met at the uh, uh, executive conference. It's proven to be a powerful organization. It provides education, networking opportunities, uh, both the technical and the management levels across the country. The uh, industry has a voice in Washington whether it be in a group setting or a one-to-one opportunity to discuss industry challenges with uh, political influencers. And I've been to a number of the events, uh, whether it's the Executive Management Conference, which is coming up just around the corner, the Committee Week, the Northeast uh, Winter, the Spring Legislative, or the Technical and Manufacturing Conferences. I find the associations created a learning environment where suppliers such as Omniglass can bring new developments to the window manufacturers as uh, at these events throughout the year. It's been awesome. Well, we appreciate your involvement and all the support you're giving the association as well. We can't do it without involved members such as yourself. Thanks, Mike. So one last question. What's something about John Zadra that would surprise people? Well, I am a structural engineer by trade. Um, As discussed earlier, I've designed fiberglass stacks up to 130 feet high. I've designed a fiberglass tank up to 35 foot diameter. And I've done covers up to 100 foot diameter. So I certainly appreciate the uh, material and its capabilities. And nobody would think you could do that with fiberglass. I also strive to keep active. I play hockey in the winter and squash. And I rode bike in the summer. And um, to fill in my uh, spare time, I just picked up the uh, tenor sax as my most recent project.
Wow. Well, thanks so much for joining us in the podcast, John. We really appreciate your insights. Mike, thank you very much. It's been uh, a great experience as far as participating with WDMA, and I look forward to uh, meeting you at a number of the uh, meetings throughout the year. Thanks. Thanks. We'll be right back with an update on the tariff debate. A lot has been going on with respect to the Trump administration's tariffs, as well as NAFTA renegotiations. So I've asked WDMA's Kevin McKenney to join us to give listeners an update. So, Kevin, what's going on? Well, Mike, quite a bit's been uh, been going on, especially this week. First of all, the United States has recently announced that they've actually reached a deal with Mexico for a new agreement. Canada is not yet on board with that. The Trump administration has an October 1st self-imposed deadline for the text of a new agreement being uh, in place. That's a self-imposed deadline. It's not a legal deadline uh, or anything like that. Now, Canada has stated that they are interested in getting on board with the United States and Mexico for a new agreement, provided that a couple conditions are met. One of them is they want reassurance that any party to a new agreement cannot use national security related motivations for imposing tariffs, which is exactly what the Trump administration did for the steel and aluminum tariffs. Part of that was being used as a negotiating tactic to try to get Canada in particular to the table to agree to the terms that the Trump administration wanted. So Canada wants reassurance that that's not going to be used in the future. Now, that's something that Congress will have to weigh in on because they're the ones who gave the authority to the executive branch. So there's going to be some legal wrangling uh, around that. So we're going to have to see what the text of an agreement says. There's uh, an expectation that they they might be releasing the text of that as early as this week. So we could see it tomorrow or Friday. Uh, so we'll have to see what a, what a text or the draft agreement contains and, and whether or not Canada will uh, want to come to the table on that. So isn't this artificial deadline imposed partly because they want to get it signed before the current Mexican president leaves office? Isn't that one of the, the issues? Yeah, that's that's a huge issue, especially going back a little bit to uh, some of the earlier days of the national renegotiating process. Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, who is the United States trade representative and the lead NAFTA negotiator, has said that he has a, a good relationship with the incoming Mexican government. However, I think they're a little bit unsure about how that government will receive the terms that they've already agreed to. So the Trump administration is definitely motivated to get a new agreement in place very, very quickly and before that administration takes office. And so that's where that October 1st really came from. And I think we're going to see the Trump administration really start to you know, put the heat onto Canada and saying, look, if you want to be part of this, you got to move quickly or else we're just going to go ahead and put something together with Mexico. Well, with respect to Canada, aren't the dispute resolution panels also still an outstanding issue? Yes, that's the other big one, uh, apart from the Section 232 national security motivations. So that, that's one thing that you know has been a, a source of consternation for Canada throughout the whole process. They've, they've wanted Chapter 19 panels uh, to be included in any new agreement that goes forward with the United States and Mexico. Part of this is to protect them from anything that, for example, the United States Department of Commerce were to do, take action on, for example, countervailing and anti-dumping duties on softwood lumber. So Canada wants reassurances that dispute resolution will be included in the new agreement. Uh, They've been saying that as early as this week. So we're going to have to look to that draft agreement that's going to be released 
possibly this week and see whether or not the Trump administration is going to agree uh, to include those uh, those chapter 19 panels for dispute resolution. Okay, so let's turn to the other big issue, which are the tariffs. So where do we stand and where are we going? We're currently in the third round of tariffs with China. So going back for just a second, we've been reporting on the various rounds of tariffs that the Trump administration has been imposing on uh, several different lists of Chinese products coming into the United States. Those uh, to start off were 25%. The second list was 25%. The third list, which was uh, just recently announced last week, is going to be a 10% tariff on uh, this list uh, for the remainder of 2018. And then come January 1st of 2019, that 10% tariff is going to go up to 25%. Now, we evaluated that list when it was in the proposed stage, and we determined that there are several products on that list that our members utilize in the manufacturing process. So we weighed in with uh, the Department of Commerce and the United States Trade Representative, specifically asking them to remove those particular products. There were over 30 of them that we identified for the Department of Commerce and we asked them to exclude those. In their announcement, they ultimately decided to keep those products in place. But what we're doing is going to be continuing working with the United States Trade Representative's office to get them to agree to publish a process for companies and trade associations, including WDMA, uh, to request those product exclusions so that we can avoid having to comply with with those tariffs. We've gotten a lot of feedback from members about the burdensome impact that it can have on uh, the supply chain and on on pricing and, and whatnot. So we're very cognizant of those concerns and we're going to be continuing to to work that issue so that uh, our members are are going to be protected against against those tariffs. So uh, we'll have more to come on that for sure. Thanks so much, Kevin. I know you spent a lot of time on these issues and we'll be spending a lot more time on these issues going forward. Absolutely. Thanks very much. And that about wraps up this episode. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also listen to us online through the WDMA website. Thanks for listening and goodbye until the next episode of WDMA Open and Close. 